Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Welcome back. Glad you're joining with us tonight. If you haven't already grabbed your Bible, I'd invite you to open your Bible or your mobile phone to Matthew chapter 25 for our Bible study tonight. We have been looking at Jesus' second longest sermon, um, and it was given in response to a question that was asked to him about the signs of his second coming and of the end of the age. And it is quite a fascinating passage of Scripture. It's two chapters, Matthew chapters 24 and 25. Jesus has answered the question in the context of three different groups of people. Uh, He's answered it generically, how the end times would look to the nations, He's answered it specifically to the Jewish nation, what it would look like for Israel. And then he answered it, what it would look like for the church. Those of us that have been called, we are not Israel. We've been called out of the nations. And we are this body of Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles, that are all made in Christ. We're born in him. And the end times will look like something to us. And so Jesus, we looked at that last time, answered that question But as we get into chapter 25, Jesus is going to tell three stories that will piggyback on what he said to the church. And so what Jesus said to the church is he said that you don't know the day or the hour of my second coming, so you better watch and be ready. And so Jesus gives three stories. We're going to look at one of those three and only one. The one that he gives in the middle is probably the most well-known of the three stories, and I believe that God has a very important, very practical, and very helpful word for us tonight as we do. I think sometimes there can be a little bit of a disconnect between, uh, you know, when we read the Bible, the realization that the things that we read actually happen. You know, so sometimes we read about a miracle or something marvelous, And because it's in the Bible, we just kind of read over it. But when we put ourselves in that text, in that moment, it's something altogether different. And one of the more remarkable things that that I think of is, and and really it's something that God used in my life in a powerful way in, in, in light of what we're talking about in these things, happened right at the ascension of Jesus. So Jesus dies on a cross. Three days later, he rises again. He shows himself at various times to different groups of people. And then after that, 40 days after, uh, there's the ascension when for the final time Jesus is taken up and it's recorded in Acts chapter one. And so Jesus is kind of walking with a group of his disciples and they're asking him questions and they ask him and they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this, is this the time when these things are going to happen? And then Jesus answers, he says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons which the father has placed in his own power but you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you and you'll be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the othermost parts of the earth. And then it says in Acts 1.9, it says that he walked with them as far as the Mount of Olives. And it says that while they looked, while they beheld, it says that he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And, and what, an, what an amazing Thing to consider, you know, that they're just standing there and all of a sudden they just watch. I mean, put yourself there. You're, you're there. You're walking. Jesus is there. And all of a sudden he starts doing the Mary Poppins thing. 
And he just begins to ascend and go up. And, and it says that they sat there and they watched, just like a little child, when he loses a balloon, just watches until it disappears as long as he can. And they just sat there. And Jesus goes, and they just stand there. And they're looking up. And they're watching. And, and they're dumbfounded by what just took place. And here, here's the thing that's so remarkable, is that two angels came over and stood next to these men that were staring up into heaven, and they asked them this question. They said, why do you stand here gazing up into the clouds? For this same Jesus, whom you just saw taken from your presence, will also again descend in like manner. But think about that question for a moment. I mean, all of heaven was dumbfounded by these men just staring there like children looking for a lost balloon. So that two angels ask the question, they say, why are you standing here gazing into heaven? And I have to tell you that there was a point in my Christian walk where the Spirit of God had to ask me the same question. Because it can be so enthralling, so you know, interesting to look into the things that Jesus says about his second coming that we can find ourselves just gazing up into heaven and doing nothing until the Spirit of God has to shake us a little bit and say, why are you gazing up into heaven? He is going to come again. But I think the big question that, that, that rests upon us as we wait for the Lord, knowing that he's coming, is what is it that we're supposed to do? We know that there's an interim. There's a time that will pass between his first and his second coming. But what do we do while we are waiting for his return? And so in light of that, Jesus answers the question in Matthew chapter 25, we begin our reading in verse 14, and I want you to listen to this story that Jesus says because it is so practical and so good. Jesus says this. He says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one to every man according to his several ability or his capacity. And straightway or right away he took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. So five, he made five more, he now has ten. And likewise, he that received the two, he also gained other two. But he that received one, went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, you delivered unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of your Lord. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you that you are a hard man, 
reaping where you had not sown and gathering where you had not strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the earth. Lo, there you have what is yours. Well, his Lord answered and said unto him, You wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest, therefore, to have put my money to the exchangers, the bankers, and then at my coming I would have received my own with interest. I could have at least gotten some return. Take, therefore, the talent from him and give it unto him which has ten talents. For unto every one that has shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that has not shall be taken away even that which he has." And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, for there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that is a fascinating passage of scripture, and it speaks to us concerning this question of what it is that we're supposed to be doing. Well, let's pick it apart, dissect it for a moment, and then let's hear the message that Jesus has to give to us through it. He begins by telling us that the kingdom of heaven, or this whole concept that we're talking about and how it relates to his kingdom and our citizenship on earth while we're part of heaven is he says that it's like a man traveling into a far country. Now we know that the man in the parable is the Lord. And we understand that when he says that he's traveling, he has already made it clear that he is going to be leaving in order to return. That's what traveling is. If you travel, you don't leave and stay. You leave eventually to return. Now, we don't know the return date, but we do know that the Lord is returning. But the Lord says that it's like this. He says that the man called all of his servants. Now, watch that and mark it, because what you see is that these people that the Lord is dealing with here are his servants. That's a polite King James way of saying his slaves. Now, don't be offended by that, but we are, if we belong to him, we are called to be his servants. We are the servants of the Lord. Okay, we serve him. The word slave in the New Testament, as it relates to you and I, is not the word slave in the classical sense, wherein you were sold on the slave market kind of a thing, but rather, the, the word in the, in the original language literally means a slave by choice. So we have come to him, and because we know who he is, and we understand a thing or two about him and about life, we have made the wise choice of placing ourselves under his lordship. And thus, by our own choice, we are servants or slaves of God. And I want you to understand that that, that word is used, because what it means is that all of us share an equal status in him. Regardless of what it is that we do or what it is that we're given, all of us share the status of slaves. And so he called his servants, and it says that he delivered unto them his goods. Now, in the parable, he uses a measurement or a unit of money to communicate what it is that he gave or gave in stewardship to those servants. Now, think about that for just a minute. Just to think, like, what, what Lord is going to diminish or disperse his bank account to his slaves while he goes and travels? I mean, that's quite an entrustment if you really think about uh, the context of what it is there. But it says that he gave 
talents to one ten, to another five, and to, I'm sorry, one five, to another two, and another one. Now, a talent, a measure of gold, it's a weight of gold, and it's worth in the, in the, in the Old Testament times about $1,000. Now, when Jesus talks about talents here, he's not saying to you and I that he has given to us money. And I want you to understand that this parable that Jesus told is not about money, it's about something else. Now, I actually like the translation, even though the, 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 the translators didn't intend that talent would be kind of a dual meaning word, but it's actually really good if you take the English modern day rendering of the word talent to understand what it's talking about, okay? Because basically what it's saying is that Jesus gave his talent to his servants. Now, and that means literally that we have been given gifts by God. You understand what it means when someone is gifted. You ever been around someone who's gifted, like really gifted? Someone who's so gifted that the giftedness is just kind of like coming off of them. You know, it follows them into the room. You know, and there's all kinds of different gifted. Usually we think of gifted in the context of uh, athletics. You know, someone who uh, has made it to the pros. They're at the top of their game. They're in the Hall of Fame. You know, they have the most touchdown passes ever recorded in yards and all. You know, we think of someone who's athletically gifted. There's people that are gifted in business. They could just, they, they just understand how it works. It's innate. It's ingrained. It's in them. They didn't necessarily study it, but they just get it. You could take everything from them. You could strip their clothes off, take their money, and drop them on a street in Singapore. And two weeks later, they're going to come out in a Rolls Royce owning something because they're just gifted in business. There's people that are gifted in other ways, people that are gifted with their looks. And yes, we can admit that life is easier in some ways for good-looking people. I know that because I am married to one. (laughs) I get it. I understand. There are times that I send my wife to do things purely because she is good-looking. When they paved our road, the transition from our driveway into the road is really messed up. And there's like this elevation problem there. And so I sent her, I said, could you go up and ask those guys if they could do something to make that a little better? So she went up and did it. Do you know what they did? They created not only the perfect transition, but they put in a little berm that would create the perfect drainage. And they paved the top five feet of my driveway. Now, if I went up and asked them to do that, they would have been like, sorry, bro, we're on a schedule. You know, we can't do it. But there's giftedness, you know, and it comes in so many different ways, shapes, and sizes. There are people that have gifts of visionaryness. I know people that are gifted with people. They're just so good. They understand people. And so you understand. Now, here's what I want you to understand, is that what Jesus is telling us here is that everyone, everyone has been given gifts. But he qualifies it by saying each one according to their several ability or according to their capacity, their ability to manage that he knows what it is that he's given to them. Now that used to bother me because I would see people that had five talents or 50 talents, and I'm not a five-talent guy. I'm not a 10-talent guy. I'm probably somewhere in the two-talent 
uh, bracket of all, all of this. And I used to look at the people that were given more and I would envy them. But now I've lived long enough and I've experienced enough life that no longer is it envy, but now it's thanksgiving, it's gratitude. Because I know what I can handle and I know what I can't. And so I've become very thankful for the limit of what he's placed upon me because I know I can't manage more than what he's given to me. So I'm not envious of someone who has more talents than me because they've got to manage, they've got to, they've got to run it, they've got to work it. And I don't have the capacity to do that. But what that also means is that I'm not supposed to complain about the level of authority or capacity that he asks of me to manage through the opportunities that he's given to me. And sometimes we have the tendency to do that. Sometimes we could say, God, why did you give me these kids? God, why did you give me this job? God, why did you give me this responsibility? Or why are you asking this of me? It's too much for me. And basically what Jesus is saying is that he knows you and I better than we know ourselves. And he gives to us things according to our ability. Now, he is not equal in the way that he disperses. But he is fair because he gives us according to what he knows that we can absolutely handle. Now, it says in verse 15 that after giving them his goods, it says that straight way he departed. There's an urgency in his departure, and that's intentional in the text because when God delivers talents, when God gives opportunities. And by the way, that's really what a talent is. If you want to say, what is a talent? A talent is an opportunity. And that's what God gives to every single one of us, an opportunity. But when he gives those gifts, he departs and he doesn't give any explanation at all. He doesn't tell them what it is or what it's for or how to execute. There's no word of discovery or of execution. That is left upon the servant. And that's important to understand that when he gives us gifts, he doesn't give us an instruction booklet when we're born telling us what they are or how to use them. We have to discover what they are and then we have to figure it out as we go. Now sometimes there's some people that can misinterpret this to think that they don't have any gift. Well, I'm not like the professional or on the professional level. I can't throw a football like Tom Brady. I can't run a business like the founder of Amazon or someone else. I, I can't be technical like Elon Musk. And so therefore, I've got nothing. You know, it doesn't work like that. No, every one of us has something, but all of us have to figure out what it is. Now, part of our job as parents is to help our kids discover that as we see the seeds of ability begin to show forth in their life. And so they have these gifts. But then it says in verse 16 that they took them, and it says that the one that had the five talents and also the one that had the two, it says that they traded with those gifts. In other words, they began to use what was imparted to them and put it to work in order to become productive. Now, I want you to mark that word traded in your Bible. And if you're taking notes or somewhere close by, you can write the words discovery, development, and execution. 
Because part of trading or becoming productive in the things that God has placed inside of us involves all three of those things. First of all, it is the discovery of figuring out what it is that God has given to you. And it is a process of discovery. For some people, it happens early in life. Some people, it takes more time. But there's a, a process of discovering what those gifts are. But then after that, there's the process of developing what it is that God has deposited inside of you. And that's a very important part of the process. You've got to understand that Tom Brady did not come out of the womb able to throw a razor line accurate touchdown pass 50 yards down the field. No, he had the ability and the potential to do those things, but he had to develop those gifts. And so every thing that's in us that we have, we have the responsibility to take what God has given and then to work it. That's part of trading with it in order to make it better, to make it excellent, to make it productive, to make it amazing. That's something that God has given us to do. And so there's development. It comes through education. It comes through experience. It comes through relationships. It comes through mentorship. You guys understand if you've ever had to grow in something, it's got to be developed. But it's not enough just to discover and just to develop. There also has to be execution. And that means I know what's in me, I know how it works, but now I have to put my pants on and go do something with it. And, and, and sadly, there's many people that fail here. They're very good at knowing what they can do, and they continue to get degree after degree in developing it, but they never put one foot in front of the other and trade with what they've got and make something of it. But if you're going to trade with it, you need all three. You need to discover it, develop it, and then you need to put it to work. You've got to execute. And when these two men, the one that had the five talents and the one that had two, when they traded with it, it says that they made something of it. The one that was given the five talents took what was given and he made something of it. And he made five more. So he was given five and then he created five with the five that he had. The two was given to, he created two more with the two that he was given. It kind of reminds me of a story of a preacher who bought a plot of land that was actually a farm, but it was completely run down. And he wanted to get the farm up and running again. He wanted to get it into shape. The house was beat down. The windows were broken. The fence was tattered. The land was overgrown. And so he would put in in his spare time a lot of sweat into bringing this property back up to speed. And so he worked his tail off week after week, month after month, much time passed, but he finally did it. He got this farm up and running. And sometime after he did it, there was another farmer who lived nearby, and he came to the, to the farmer, and he looked at him, and he said, man, he goes, you and God have done a great work here. And, and the, the, the preacher, farmer, looked back at this other farmer, and he, and he kind of said to him reverently, but clearly, he said, yeah, but you should have seen it when God had control all by himself. You see, he understood that us taking what God has given is not enough just to have it. We've got to make something of it. God has never once in the history of humanity ever made a table or a chair but God makes trees and he gives to you and I the vision and the potential and the ability to turn a tree into a table 
And that's what these guys did. They traded, they implemented, they executed upon what was in them, and they turned it into something that was productive that they could then bring back to him. God does not give prosperity. God gives opportunity. And it's our responsibility to take what we've been given and to turn it into something else. Now, if you look at verses 16 through 18, what you will see is that the man who was given five talents turned five into ten. That means that the man with five, he created a 100% return on the initial investment. He made a hundredfold of what was given or deposited to him. That's pretty good. That's pretty amazing. I mean, there's not very many investments that are going to return a 100-fold return. But this man did it. Now, the man that had the two talents, he turned it into four. And though it seems as though four, yes, it's a lot less than 10, but he also created a 100% return on what was deposited into them. And the man, of course, that had the one talent, he did nothing with his, and he created a 0% return on his investment. Now, I want you to understand this about these three different characters, is that all three of these humans, they all had the same status. They were all slaves. They all had the same stress level, meaning that they were given as much as they could handle. So two wasn't given five, and five wasn't given 20. One wasn't given two. They all were fully stressed. They had as much as they could handle. So they were same status, same stress level, and they all had the same amount of information. Not one of them was given more information than the others. They just were given the talents, and then they had to leave. And so there was a great equality in what they could do, what they had to do, and the amount of information that they had. Well, in verse 19, now comes the reckoning. And there is always going to be a day of reckoning. And I want to ask you a question. How many of you that are listening right now have learned that things that don't seem to matter at one point in your life, later on you find that they really do actually matter more than you thought early on? I think all of us have felt that to some degree or another. You know, remember when you were really young and you would just eat whatever you wanted and you gave no thought to your health at all whatsoever? You could eat whatever you wanted, you stayed healthy, and you could still do everything you wanted. And remember your grandma, or maybe it was your mom or your dad, they looked at you and said, be careful, be careful. Someday that's going to come back and bite you. Someday. You know, you're only hurting yourself. My grandmother used to say that to me, you know, when she'd see certain things. And we would go, yeah, it don't matter. It don't matter. I can do whatever I want. But then you come to a certain age where you realize, oh, it matters. And I should have looked after my health a little bit more in my younger years because I wouldn't be paying for that now. There's a day of reckoning. How many of us understand that in terms of financial things? We thought, well, we're just going to live forever, and we don't have to put anything away for the future. And then you get to the point where there's a reckoning, where you realize that what you did early on makes a difference later on in your life. Sometimes we do that with our kids. Our kids are very young, and we think, well, they don't have as much of a need, or their needs are more physical. They don't need time. They don't need attention. They don't need relationship. And so we kind of neglect that, and then later on, there's a reckoning when we realize that they're missing some things that we were called to provide. 
Sometimes we do that with our marriage, you know, where we put very little into the marriage in the days of simplicity, and then when the days of complication come later on, we don't know how to relate to each other, get along with each other, and we become different people, and there's a separation because we thought, well, it doesn't really matter. I don't need to make this the best thing that I can. We can do that with so many different things, education and others, but I want you to understand that there is always going to be a day of reckoning where the things I do today are going to come back and either haunt me or bless me tomorrow. And in the great context of it, someday we're going to stand before Jesus and he is going to pull out of us all the things that he deposited into us and he is going to ask us, what did we do with those things? There will be a day of reckoning. Now, for two out of the three of these, that day was a joyous occasion. Because Jesus replied to the man with the five and the man with the two, who increased a hundredfold, he said, well done, good and faithful servant. He said, enter into the joy of the Lord, for you have been servant, you were faithful in a few things, and I will now make you a ruler over many things. Do you realize how huge it is what Jesus gave to these two men? Is that not only did he praise them for what they did, and just to receive affirmation from Jesus himself, is an amazing privilege. Just think about that. But then he rewards them by calling them into his joy, into the fullness of the joy of his kingdom. But then he upgrades their status. He moves them from the status of slave, and he now brings them into the realm of ruling. So there's an amazing promotion that happens in these men on the day of reckoning when they realize what was given to them there. It's amazing. But then there's the reckoning of the third man who is in the Bible called the unprofitable servant. And when Jesus reckons with him, this man has to look at the son of God who deposited to him his goods. And he has to say, I have got nothing and I have done nothing. I disregarded what you put in me. I gave very little attention or care for it. I've got nothing. Now, you would almost think, you know, we think of Jesus as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, you know, that Jesus here is going to do everything he can to pacify or to console or even to excuse this guy. That he's going to say something like, yeah, I know you grew up in a single parent home and you didn't really have a dad and there was nobody to really help you and you were kind of an introvert and shy and you didn't really, I, I understand all of that and, you know, and, and, and this whole, everyone gets a trophy, participation trophies for everybody. Even, you know, you, you had my, my, my gift in you, so Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't just give, move this guy along just because Jesus replies to this guy harshly. And he says to him, you wicked and lazy servant. You wicked and lazy servant. Now think about that. Jesus looks at it as wickedness, to take something that he has given to you and for you to not use it or to not discover it or develop it or execute on it. You have a gift, you have a talent, and you don't care. You don't, you don't want to use it for God. You don't want to put forth the effort. He sees it as wicked for you to complain about what's been in you, to envy what's in someone else, to downplay or diminish or not discover what it is that he has placed in you, he sees that as wickedness. Think about this for a moment. 
is that if God has delivered to you something, and remember, it's his, it's not yours. If God has given you something, he's given you something because there's someone else that needs to benefit based upon what you have been given, what's been placed in you. And if you choose to bury that, then that means that someone else isn't getting what only you can provide. And that's a terrible thing to think about, to think that, well, I don't want to, or it's hard for me, or it's not what I would choose for myself, so I'm not going to do it. And that's a crazy thing to think about. Well, Jesus says to this guy, listen, at the very least, you could have taken my money and put it with the exchangers. Now, I, I circled this. I meditated on this. I'm like, Lord, what's a banker in your kingdom? I thought we were going to get away from the banks. You know, finally, when you get into your kingdom. Listen, the bankers are the brokers, all right? The bankers are the traders. Who are the traders? They're the people that are productive, so in other words, what he's saying is, listen, the very least that you could have done is you could have gone to the collective gathering place. I think that's the church. And you could have at least made yourself available as a volunteer. You might not have known how to use your gift. You might not have been fully developed in what it was or understood. But at the very least, you could have served on some generic level. Or you could have gone to someone who's more productive than you and you could say, hey, how can you use me? Or how can I be used? Or can you mentor me? I see that you're maybe a little bit further along than I am. Could you teach me how you think? There's something you can do, even if you don't know what you have or you don't know how it works. And Jesus says you should have at least done that. Now listen, if you do that, if you're a one-talent person, or maybe you're a five-talent person, but you struggle with laziness or something, the very least you can do is you can go and ask someone to help you. And here's what's going to happen is that at least you're going to get a vision. You're going to understand something that you can do. But what's probably going to happen is it's going to turn into an opportunity and you'll find yourself moving in the right direction, moving towards being productive. But listen, you've got to do something. You cannot sit gazing up into heaven, waiting for the Lord to come, knowing that he's put something in you, but yet making nothing of it. You've got to get on a path. Now, Jesus rejects this man. He ultimately casts him out of his presence, which is amazing to me because I'm thinking about this and I'm looking at it and, and, and I'm looking and I'm trying to like take sides with this guy a little bit. I'm trying to like, you know, come alongside of him and, and, and see what it is. Why is it that Jesus is being so seemingly, uncharacteristically harsh towards him? And I want you to understand this. Is that the reason is not because he is unprofitable in the sense that Jesus is trying to make a profit off of us. All right, the Bible says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The Bible says that if he were hungry, he wouldn't even tell us. The Bible says that he is the all-sufficient God and that he is in need of nothing. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our tithes. He doesn't need our offerings. He doesn't need any of that. Do you understand that what Jesus is jealous for in all of this is our joy? He said, well done, enter into the joy of the Lord. Like, that's what he is about in this whole thing. It's not because this man was unprofitable. That's not why he's cast out. But rather, the reason he's cast out, and listen carefully, it's because of what his sloth revealed about him. What did he say to Jesus out of his own mouth when he gave account? He said, I was fearful. I was fearful because you are a hard man. You reap where you haven't 
sowed, you gather where you haven't straw, this whole thing. Listen, this man's problem is that his instinct was fear, and that fear crippled him from being productive with his life. I want you to understand this, that instinct is a byproduct of what's inborn. And his instinct was fear, trepidation, reservation, and idleness. That was his instinct. That's what was in him. That's what he did. As I was preparing this study, I was sitting at my house. I was sitting at a desk in the little home office I have. It happens to be right in front of a window, which is a horrible place to put a desk because it's very distracting. But outside this window, there's this massive maple tree in my backyard. I mean, the thing is a silver maple. I mean, it's massive. If it ever falls down, you will read my obituary. It's that big, you know, <laughs> on my house. It's right over my bedroom. It's bad, you know. But, Georgia, don't be afraid. I'm going to take, tie it. Don't, don't worry. You can sleep tonight. But anyways, I'm looking at this maple tree, and I'm watching the baby squirrels. And we, we have all these squirrels around, and they're babies. They're just a hair bigger than chipmunks. And I'm watching this little squirrel, and he is in this tree, and he is in it, and he is just going out to the end of the branch, and he jumps to another branch, and he comes back in. And then he bounds out to the end of the... There's nothing there. There's no acorns. There's no seeds. There's nothing. He just bounces. He comes back in. He goes back out. He comes back in. He jumps another branch. He goes back out. He comes back in. And I'm looking at this thing, and, I, and I'm kind of waiting in my mind. I'm kind of waiting for his parents to come and, and kind of set up a blackboard and say, okay, let's analyze your jumps. All right, and here's what you're supposed to do. And here's... A, and No, you would never see that. You see a squirrel bounding from branch to branch to branch to branch. Because why? Because that's their instinct. It's what's inborn. It's in them to do it. He can barely walk, and yet the first thing he does is, I am made to jump. And he does what is instinctively in him to do. Now, this man instinctively says, I'm not good enough. I can't. I have no value. His instinct is no faith. He's got none. Now, listen, here's what you got to hear tonight. This is the message. This is what Jesus wants you to hear through this passage tonight is that when you become his servant, when you yield yourself to say, Lord, you have deposited something in me and you are calling me to make something of it, and Lord, I am your servant, the Bible says that he gives you his spirit. He ignites or makes alive what he has placed in you with the illuminating life and power of his spirit, he comes inside and you are now born in him. And with that spiritual birth, the spirit of God coming into you, you are now given a new instinct. And the Bible defines it for us. It's 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. You probably know the verse. But Paul says this. He says that God has not given us a spirit of fear but rather of power, of love, and of a sound mind. Power is energy. Love is motivation. Paul would say in another place, faith works by love. And a sound mind is vision. It's clarity. It's being able to see. Energy, motivation, and vision. That's the spirit that God places inside of his servant. Now listen to me. If you have energy and motivation and clarity of vision and purpose, 
You can't help but move. I know that's true about you because that's true about every human being. And if you're idle or crippled, it's because you lack one of those things. You either have no energy or you have no motivation or you have no vision. But if you have all three of those things, then you're going to move. And that's what he puts inside of you when you become his servant. That's the spirit of Christ. In the Old Testament, we read about Caleb. And it says of Caleb in Numbers chapter 14, verse 24, God says this of him. He says, my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, he has followed me fully. Him will I bring into the land whereinto he went, and his seed shall possess it. You know when God said that? When everyone else was fearful, faithless, and not wanting to move into what God called them into. And Caleb said, no, we've got to go. If God called us, God's going to give it to us. And God said, that's my spirit. It's in him. He's got another spirit. But because of the fear and the faithlessness of the rest of the congregation, Caleb had to wait 40 years to move into what he was so hungry for. But God said, because that spirit was in you, I'm going to bring you in. You're going to go into it. And so when Caleb was 80 years old and the promised land was finally taken, Caleb went to Joshua, who was the leader at that time, and he said to him at 80, he said, Now therefore give me this mountain whereof the Lord spoke in that day, for you heard in that day how the Anakims were there, and that the cities were great and fenced. If so be, the Lord will be with me, then I will be able to drive them out as the Lord said. That spirit that was in Caleb, that was in him when he was 40, was still in him when he was 80. And he said, I can still see, I can still fight, and I'm going to take this mountain. It's mine. If God gave this to me, if God made me a promise, if God deposited something for my life, I'm taking it. And nothing's going to stop me from it. Not my age, not my weakness, not my decrepitness. Nothing is going to stop me if he promised it to me. That's a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. And when you are the servant of Christ filled with his spirit, that is instinctive inside of you. You will move upon what God has placed inside of you. That is what Caleb had. That is what these other two men had. And so what does that mean for you and for me? It means that if you are filled with the Spirit of God, then God's going to give you a job, but you're going to turn it into a career. God will give you a skill, you'll turn it into a business. God will give you a child, you'll turn it into a doctor. God will give you a marriage, you'll turn it into a witness. God will give you a burden or an anger about something, and you'll turn it into justice and change for many. God will give you a personal challenge in your own life, and you'll turn it into a solution for everyone who struggles with the same thing. Listen, God will give you his word, and you will turn it into a well-ordered, established, and fruitful life. He gives us the instinct to move forward, the instinct to increase. And what this man's sloth revealed about him is that he was not God's at all. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says that if any man have not the spirit of Christ, then he is none of his. And this man did not have the spirit of Christ. And listen, there are some of you that are listening to my voice tonight, and this is the very reason why you are frustrated. 
You have not submitted yourself to his lordship and become his servant. You're not partakers of his Holy Spirit. And that's why you don't have power and motivation and a sound mind. Just uh, um, recently, I noticed in my, my 2009 Pontiac G6 that one of my front, um, my front wheels, I would step on the brake, but when I took my foot off the brake, the brake wasn't letting go. You know, you could kind of feel that, and it was kind of gradual, so it kind of felt like it's a little sluggish, it's not really working, but it gradually got to the point where this Sunday, uh, when I left from here to go home, it was so bad that on just a short drive, the car was just bucking, and by the time I got home, it was smoking, and it was just, it was bad. It was time to, to, to address this, <laughs> this issue, you know? So I, I get it up, and I take the wheel off, and, you know, and the brakes are brand new. I just changed the brakes not even six months ago. I did it myself. That's not why it's hanging up. You'll, you'll find that out in the, the story, you know. But everything's new. Rotor's new. I even changed the caliper, the, which is the piston that gets stuck, you know, everything. So I take it all apart again, and there's, a, there's, a, there's like a piston and inside the cylinder. It squeezes the brakes. Don't want to get too technical here. But you're supposed to be able to squeeze that, that piston back inside the cylinder. And so I, I put grips on it. And I tried to squeeze it, and I couldn't, I couldn't squeeze it. Nothing. I tried clamps. I tried everything. It would not move. It's a brand new caliper. So I called my neighbor. He's a, a professional mechanic, you know, like developed, 10-talent kind of guy, you know. And so I asked him, I said, hey, what's going on? And he said, check the hose that goes right down inside the wheel well that comes down to the caliper. And I said, yeah, but I can, I can get fluid to, to come down through that hose if I detach things. He says, no, 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 it's more technical than that. He goes, it, it flows both ways. He goes, it has to, there's something inside that when you take your foot off the brake, it retracts a little bit. He goes, check that hose. And so I got one of those hoses, it was 30 bucks. I put it on. As soon as I put that hose on, I was able to easily push the caliper, that, that piston, back inside the cylinder. It was effortless and it just went. That was the problem. You say, why are you teaching us how brakes work? On it? Here's why. Because there are some of you right now that you are trying to move and your brakes are stuck. And there is smoke coming out of your head. You are frustrated and you are literally ruining. You're tapping out your energy because every time you even try to move, it's tapping everything out of you. Do you know what's probably happening? Is that there is something stuck in the hose and there is not a free flow of the Spirit of God in your life. And so things are being squeezed, but there's no retraction. There's no flow. You are frustrated because of this. You pray for the Spirit of God to come into your life. You ask Him and you claim His promise that He's going to fill you if you ask Him. And you pray and you pray and you pray, but there's something lodged in your hose that you will not surrender to His Lordship. And you can pray until the cows come home. You can put as much pressure on the promises of God as you want. But as long as your hand is on top of the cup, the fire hose will not fill it. And there are some of you that that is your very issue right now is that you're not moving forward because you are not surrendered to the spirit of the living God. I believe there's also some of you that are listening to my voice tonight, and you actually are struggling because you have, I'm going to say it, you have an unhealthy desire for the rapture. That's right, an unhealthy desire for the rapture. Okay, now we all long for his kingdom, his appearing, the trumpet call, are going home to be unto him, 
That's what we want. But that is not to be our attitude. I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul said. It's Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. He says this. He says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, that's on earth, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet, what I shall choose, I don't know. In other words, he came to a point where it seems that God was giving him the option, do you want to come home to heaven or do you want to abide still yet longer on earth? And here's what Paul says. He says, nevertheless, or he says, verse 23, for I am in a straight, I'm, I'm in a straight jacket. I'm torn between two, having a desire to depart. I want to go. I want to be raptured. I want to be in his presence. I want to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. But watch verse 24. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh, to stay on earth right now, is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I will abide and continue with you for your furtherance and your joy of faith. In other words, Paul said, I know heaven is a reality and I know that it's coming, but I've been given a commission. I've been given a call. There's been something that's been deposited into my life and I am going to be poured out for his cause and I will yet forbear being in his presence because I will make the most of what he has entrusted to me in this time that I'm in right now. Listen carefully, church. When Jacob was engaged to Rachel, he had to wait seven years for the ceremony. It was part of the agreement. But it says of Jacob, it says that those seven years seemed to him as though they were a couple of days because of the love that he had for Rachel. Love motivated him to work while he was waiting. And God has put in us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. And though he tarry long, and though we be struggling, Though we are waiting for him to come, he has placed in us his spirit. I ask you this, if your desire for the rapture, if it is fear, I'm afraid of what's coming on the earth, that's a problem. If your desire for the rapture is because you don't want to embrace the challenge that's in front of you in one area of your life right now and you just think it would just be easier, yes, I know it would get e be easier, but if that's what's motivating you to want the rapture to come now, then that is probably a problem. Listen, there's nothing wrong with looking forward to the weekend, all right, to be done with work for the week. There's nothing wrong with anticipation. But if you're one of those people that in the middle of the workday you're hoping that the power goes out so that you can just go home and start it now, that's a problem. It's a, re it's a revelation that your heart isn't in really what you're doing. Here's my message to you tonight. Don't waste your opportunity. God has given you something that no one can take from you. Your opportunity comes from God. It's in you. And you have the potential to do something that no one else can do and to bear fruit for his name. And you know, right now in this situation that we all find ourselves in, for some of you, this is the greatest opportunity that you'll ever find. Because some of you, you are downright stuck in the rhythm of your job or your dead-end career or what you were doing that had no bearing on who you were as a person. And now it might be your great opportunity to say, God, what did you deposit inside of me? And what is it that you're going to lead me into?
If you're a young person and you're listening to me tonight, you're still in high school, or maybe you're even younger than that, or maybe you're in college, understand this, that right now you're in a stage of life where you are literally developing your capacity. In other words, you are developing your several ability, whether you're going to be a five-talent person, a two-talent person, or a one-talent person. Because this is the part where you stretch all that out and get strong. Don't take it for granted. Don't say this is a waste of time. Seize every opportunity and examine everything that God has placed inside of you and understand that if he put it there, it is necessary. Do you realize that David, King David, was both a harpist and a warrior? And those two things don't usually go together. I mean, you don't usually look at like a UFC fighter who like gets to the top of his game and nobody can beat him, he's undefeated. And then, and then someone says of him, yeah, but he can play a mean harp. <laughs> you think those things don't really fit, but they do fit. Here's why. Because if David wasn't a great harpist, he never would have been brought into the palace in order to put him in front of a giant and become the warrior that he was. God uses everything. If you have an interest, a talent, if you develop it, learn it, discover it, execute on it, God uses all of it. And understand this, Christian. Your mountain is bigger than you think. Most people dwell in the foothills of all that they could be, all that they can do for the things of God. But know this, that there is always more. And where you are now is not a bearing on where you have to end. I read one theologian, he said this. He says that what you have when you start is God's gift to you. But what you have when you finish is your gift to him. And he has given us all the ability to be these things. So what do we do between now and the rapture? Here's what we do. Number one is we surrender. We say, Lord, I want to be your servant. Not my will, not what, not what I want to do for you, but Lord, what you have made me to do, what you've called me to do. Nothing holding back. Nothing in the break hose. Lord, you have free reign in my life to do whatever you want. That is surrender to his sovereignty. Now listen, his spirit will not empower what is not surrendered. It won't happen. You could pray for it, ask for it, but it won't happen. It won't do it, okay? So surrender is number one. Number two is submerge. That is, be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Now really, those two things are one and the same. Because if you surrender, you will be submerged. Water will automatically occupy whatever space it is allowed into. And when you surrender to God, His Spirit will fill your life. And when you submerge, you'll find that you have plenty of energy, that you have plenty of motivation, and that you have clear vision as to what it is that God wants you to do. Power, love, and of a sound mind. And then number three is automatic too, is that you'll soar. You will go. You're going to move. He's going to give you the instinct to increase and opportunities are going to come. And though it be long that we may wait for his return, it will be but a couple of days. And isn't it amazing that what he's jealous for in all of this is our joy. That's what he wants. He's jealous for our joy. The instinct to increase comes from the Spirit of God. And I ask you, do you have it? Father, we just thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, for being so clear in, in the way that you taught, in the way that you teach, for giving us a picture, for illustrating these things so amazingly for us. And tonight, Lord, I pray that the great searchlight would shine over our hearts and over our minds and over our lives. 
and that you, Spirit of God, would search us out, that you'd show us, Lord, what's causing the caliper to stick, and that you'd show us the areas of our lives where we're unsurrendered to you, and that you would teach us, Lord, to discover, to develop, and execute on what's inside of us, that not one of us would stand before you one day and hear you say, you wicked and slothful servant, you did nothing. But help us, Lord, to have wisdom and understanding and to know, Lord, that what you're after is our joy and to bring us into your glory. So help us, Lord. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your goodness. We need your help, Lord. Apply this message individually as a scene fit. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.